Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that's really clucking annoyed. My name's Corey Hesler, and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. We are controversial listeners breaking the podcast's no alcohol rule. That's partly because we're recording at 10 past nine on Friday night. It's also because we are celebrating a Labour poll lead, Steve. Oh, wow. Two, in fact, Labour poll leads, I think, in separate polls. Ooh. Yeah. They'll be gone by next week. <laughs> because we'll be in Downing Street. So, um, uh, obviously, listeners will know that the, 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 the exception in the past to the no alcohol rule was talking about Donald Trump. But I suppose this episode is about Britain Trump, really, or Boris Johnson, or the Prime Minister, as we are unfortunately meant to call him. It's been a hell of a week for Boris Johnson. Not only has he lost his poll lead, feels like there's lots of chickens in his particular government coming home to roost this week. We're going to talk about a few of those chickens. Does it mean a quick exit for Boris Johnson, or will MPs chicken out of a leadership challenge? Let's find out once Steve has beaten me up for those puns. Normally they're just like, oh, okay, no, that those were like chicken and egg puns are just the worst form of pun. But which pun came first? Was it the chicken pun or the egg pun? That's it for this week. Because Steve has decided to just walk out of the the recording. They all call it creative differences. So first chicken coming home to roost um, that we we're, we're going to talk about. Nasni Zakari Radcliffe, the most serious and heartrending of the cases which it can be just about directly linked to the malfeasance of Boris Johnson still held in an Iranian prison her husband at the moment is on a hunger strike in in London I think he's just got to to day 20 met officials from uh, Iran I think with Chilip Sadiq who's his MP the reason why it could be traced directly to Boris Johnson it's because actually, as Jonathan Friedland says in a quite excellent article for, for The Guardian that's just come out this week, it was about four years ago to the month that Boris Johnson, when he was foreign secretary then, told the parliamentary committee that Nazneen Zagora Radcliffe was just teaching people journalism in Iran, which was then used as a sort of excuse by the regime to say that she was spreading propaganda and, and put back into custody. Yeah, it, it's a classic example of... Boris Johnson not being fit actually for a, any kind of political office in many ways because he he speaks without thinking, does whatever sounds good in the moment um, rather than actually thinking things through. I mean, you've, there's been plenty of examples of that over the past uh, few weeks. Uh, and unfortunately, the situation with uh, Radcliffe is just... As you said, I think I think you use the word heartrending, and and it really it really is where you have the situation where her husband is on let's say day day twenty or so of a of a hunger strike. This isn't the first hunger strike he's done. He's, he's lots of humming and whoring about the situation, lots of discussions about what the government can or should do. I think just to, there's a couple of reasons why it's tied to Johnson so personally. So one of them, as you say, is because it's, it's Boris Johnson's, as Freeland says in the piece, it's his slapdash nature. He hasn't mastered his brief, speaks without thinking. The other aspect of it is, um, as you say, 
him uh, just saying what people telling people what they want to hear to get them out of a tight spot and to get to get himself out of a tight spot which as we're, we're going to talk about the Northern Ireland Protocol in a second that's exactly what happened with Brexit during the election claiming there wouldn't need to be border checks claiming there wouldn't be a border down the Irish Sea speaking at a DUEP conference and then shafting them as well Richard Radcliffe is a husband who's on on the hunger strike at the moment one of the things that Freeland says in the piece that he's has really exacerbated the situation is that Johnson briefed to friendly newspapers that Britain would pay I see, I didn't realize before this week uh, I think there's a section with it on the today program and on the right the the uh, Freedland piece today part of the of the issue is Britain not paying 400 million pounds from um, an unfulfilled arms deal from the 1970s and um, Johnson apparently was briefing friendly papers that essentially Britain would pay that 400 million pounds and tying it to the guy Radcliffe's release um, except the money hasn't been paid I think I'm right in saying that the government sort of said that can't happen because of the sanctions that are happening with Iran at the moment therefore according to, to Richard Radcliffe anyway that's one of the reasons why Nazanin is still in custody yeah, and, and yet again, this is probably another example of Johnson and his government having a bright idea, not thinking it through, and then kind of heading off with it like a bull in a, to- in a china shop, and then suddenly realising, oh, that doesn't work, and having to backpedal. Well, it'll be interesting to see if it, if the attitude does change. I get the impression that Dominic Raab was a bit more hardline on it when he was Foreign Secretary, and that's one of the reasons it didn't happen. We've got a new Foreign Secretary now, Liz Truss, one of the movers and shakers of British politics, officially endorsed by this podcast. D- don't use the word endorsed. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> that, that implies we agree with that. <laughs> Fair. It feels like, from what Truss, this is more, I think, from private comments, in the press rather than public statements, I think. But Trust feels like it's, she's being more hardline on China than Iran. So it would be interesting to see if there is a change in movement from the from the government on this. Um, again, just in terms of sort of the theme of the episode of sort of chickens coming home to roost, I think a lot of what we're going to talk about is this more Westminster uh, tittle-tattle, to be honest. But I think this is just a really poignant and horrible example about how Boris Johnson's unfitness for office just manifests itself in real human tragedies. Yeah, 100%. Because the thing is, when we talk about a lot of other kind of like policy areas or policy agendas, they become abstract. You know, you talk about the NHS and, and in some form and you go, yeah, well, of course that has an impact on people's lives. Well, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. It's very much that kind of um, approach where most areas of, of public policy are dealing with such huge amounts of money and the impacts are so widespread that they become depersonalized. But ultimately, as, as, as humans, we respond to individual tales and individual stories. And uh, unusually for foreign policy especially, this is a, a, a tale which has a, a very uh, provocative and, as you say, heartrending like a pair of uh, protagonists. Speaking of abstract foreign policy concepts that have a huge impact on millions of lives, the second chicken that's coming home to roost is Brexit. Took me a second to work, work out where you were going there. I was just like, wait, what was that? Um, so the Northern Ireland Protocol is a, is a thing still just about. There's talk in the press, mainly from, from Lord Frost, uh, very much the uh, new villain on the block of Brexit talks in mm-hmm. season 23, I think we're in now. Will it trigger, won't it trigger uh, Article 16, which is different to Article 50? 
We should talk more about the substance of it later, I suppose. Big picture stuff is essentially to sort the issue of the Northern Ireland border out and the fact you need to have frictionless trade. The border's in the Irish Sea, so therefore Northern Ireland needs to be in the single market, therefore is subject to the European Court of Justice, which the people who supported who the Brexiters don't really like. So they are maybe thinking that triggering Article 16 would be a bit of a get out of the process. EU is not happy with that because turns out they don't really like it if you make agreements and then welch on them. Ursula von der Leyen met with Joe Biden. I think the US have been quite clear that the Good Friday Agreement can't be imperiled. Mm-hmm. Also, um, you've got people from the European Union this week saying... Actually, if you think about the EU's order of talks in how they put the negotiations forward, that you sort the Northern Ireland border out, then you talk about the final settlement. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if, if we start sort of unpicking the Northern Ireland settlement and the Northern Ireland protocol, that puts the whole free trade treaty at risk. So there's even a chance that we could have a sort of hipster no deal at some point in 2023. That would be just be, it'd just be hell on toast, wouldn't it? Yeah, which is one of the reasons I feel like it's probably not going to happen because you're getting far too close to the, the, the point in time where you need to have an election. I just don't see the, the, the Conservatives wanting to risk anything majorly on that just because, like, no deal, and any form of actual no deal would be full-on disastrous. Like, we, we, we've had some shortages in, like, the uh, in supermarkets and things now, partially due to just, like, the, um, you know, the HTV driver shortages and, and, and things like that, which is linked to Brexit but not 100% caused by Brexit. But, and, like, you can just about kind of muddle through where we are currently. Um, but it gets any worse than this and people are going to be full-on like going hell for leather for the government for allowing it to get to that point. The weird thing is that actually because Northern Ireland is still part of sort of single market customs union, they don't have the food shortages that Great Britain does. Uh, and again, and I think there were some government ministers who tried to claim that actually it was this the Northern Ireland project was good. I think, was it Michael Gove? It Probably. might not have been. But actually this was a good thing for Northern Ireland because they got the benefits of the single market customs union, at which point I, I just started crying. Um, I don't really understand the politics of this, although if you've listened to the podcast the last five years, you'll realise that maybe we don't understand the politics of Brexit at all <laughs> from a sort of election winning prospect and sort of missed a lot of it along the way. So on one level, I think what maybe is trying to happen is if we think about that, that election coming up, Johnson won on get Brexit done. He thinks maybe he can try and win another election on the back of a manufactured drought with the EU. Yeah. However, I think the key thing in that is he won an election on getting Brexit done. He didn't win an election. He got an Essentially, it was, it'll be sorted. We won't have to think about it. But it was the thing that it, it, it just baffled, has baffled me continuously over the last 18 months or so is the way that the UK government continually insists on unpicking the only thing that was agreed when actually it's a thin deal and needs to be improved. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, there's two things that kind of spring to my mind when you say that. One is... Um is uh, some some recent stuff from Dominic Cummings, um, who, you know, for all his faults... Made his trains run on time? (laughs) For all his faults, like a stop clock at least uh, uh, twice a day has uh, is correct on one thing. And he was absolutely essential to um, winning the referendum. He does... He was able to read the public electorate in a in a certain way um to to help secure that victory and cummings is basically coming out and saying look this current situation where they keep on coming back to brexit isn't sustainable because it's not about brexit anymore it's about ireland we've got a brexit has been achieved quote unquote and uh, now we're just arguing about 
about Ireland, which is not the same thing to most people. Therefore, people aren't going to wash it in the same way. And that, I think, then makes me think of, uh, I think it was um, uh, James O'Brien from uh, LBC. There was a nice little um, monologue, uh, I suppose the best way to describe it, they mm-hmm. gave up. Because it, it was talking about it in relation uh, in relation to the uh, Owen Patterson stuff and how people kept on bringing up Brexit in relation to it. And he basically said he's worked out why it is. And I think there's some truth to this, which is because when you, uh, up until relatively recently, whenever Brexit was brought up, like the Tories got a free pass. You could link it to Brexit, like people went, oh, okay, you know, that's fine, we'll get that done. And so, like, they tried to prorogue Parliament, you know, attack on British democracy, Brexit, okay, we'll let, let that pass. You know, all of these different things uh, come up time and time again, Brexit, 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 we'll let it go, we'll let it go, we'll let it go. So because they, they know that they can get away with that, they keep on trying to bring it back to it. So, and I think this is, with, with Ireland, it's what they're trying to do is, as you say, manufacture something that they can then say, oh, look, no, it's Brexit. We can now do whatever we want. Like, we can ignore, like, what the Standards Commission is saying. We can ignore all of this Jeffrey Cox stuff. We can ignore what's happening with uh, Stuart Ratcliffe and uh, uh, and everything else. We can ignore an awful lot of the rest of British foreign policy and, and military spend expenditure or, or, or any other policy area because Brexit. And that particular track is coming to a dead end because, as you say... We've, they were elected to get Brexit done. Nominally, at least, they have got Brexit done. If they unpick it themselves, that's on them. That's nothing to do with Remainers or saboteurs or anybody else. That's on them, and they hold all of the responsibility for that. And I suspect at this point, we'll actually be held responsible for that as well. But it, so it, it feels a bit of a misreading of the forces that Brexit have unleashed. So again, we've talked about things like Brexit land, sort of accounts of how essentially Brexit has almost polarised the electorate. But the reason why it's so uh, so disruptive is because it kind of cleaved both main parties. And so I can <clears throat> part of the reason why the Tories were able to win so handsomely in 2019 is because they were able to unite the Brexit vote. Labour couldn't quite unite all the Remain vote. And we've talked about why Tory Remainers didn't necessarily plump for the Dems in the way they needed to, but a lot of Labour Brexit voters voted Conservative. And therefore, I suppose the point is you need to, f- or you need to think of issues then which unite those particular groups of voters. And actually, if the next election is going to end up being, I mean, look at what people are saying is really important issues now. It's not necessarily immigration; it's the environment, it's climate change, it's the economy, it's jobs. And we've sort of said before those sort of Labour Brexit voters tend to be more economically left-wing. So they're trying, and, and Sunak sort of did this in the budget, aren't they? They're trying to unite these voters with sort of economic grounds. We've talked about how probably it doesn't really work on cultural war issues, but it certainly, I don't think, works on as you, yeah, trying to rerun the same Brexit arguments. It's just you need to find new ways of keeping that coalition together. Yeah, I, I, I feel like the, 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 the issue they've, as you say, is that they've misunderstood what Brexit was about, in that they seem to think it's that Brexit itself was the ideological point for a lot of these people. And, you know, for a certain point, a uh, part of like the Tory coalition absolutely is. Um, you know, freedom, quote-unquote, from Europe is, is definitely something that they really do care about. But what you've got is the fact that an awful lot of that, that, for lack of a better term, red wall vote, 
um, which um, voted for Brexit and then voted Tory in 2019. It's not an ideological thing. It was a just a it was just basically a, a way to show the system isn't working for us, or we don't believe the system is working for us. We want something different. This is a major change. Let us vote for the major change and see if it can. It can make make things better for us. That's what it was. But by failing to kind of realise that and thinking it's the ideological test that the likes of Steve Baker um, and you know the uh, the European Reform Group hold it to be, they, they they seem to think that they can come back to it constantly. And it's like a it becomes almost like um uh, you know abortion in the United States, where on both sides of the debate it is a uh, you know it's a weapon to whip up the base. Whether you're pro-life or or, um, uh, or or pro-choice, you it gets utilised as a way to basically just fire everybody up and get people engaged. Most people in in the UK though aren't actually engaged by Brexit in that kind of way, but they seem to think they are, and that's where the disconnect is coming from. I think. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's an interesting point, and that's I think something that Cummings is trying to say. Um, and they, it's kind of hard because the the guy's just an arrogant bastard. To mm. be fair. But I think one of the things that comes across repeatedly when you read his stuff on Brexit is it's it's not just the kind of ERG, it's, it's the sort of Dan Hanan type view, yeah. very sort of global Britain, which Cummings doesn't really have much time for. And I, I think one of the things that Cummings seems to realise is that you, as you say, you talked about abstract issues before. One of the things that Vote Leave did was link Brexit to lots of tangible issues to appeal to people, like things like animal rights, um, and, and target online very, very effectively. Um, in a similar way, actually, that the, again, it's the same sort of people who ran the AV referendum. You know, got to get it in somewhere, listeners, crowbar it in, saying that we should spend money on the NHS, not a new voting system. Mm-hmm. He's trying to make those abstract issues more concrete. And I think what Cummings realised is you're not just going to win on the people who believe in sovereignty and trade deals with Mauritius. Yeah. It needs to be linked to a more sort of wider more left-wing argument for change, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Which, again, links through to the notion of levelling up and, you know, the government's failure to deliver on that in any meaningful way and whether they can or, can or cannot do that, which will be, I suspect, one of the ultimate signs of whether or not they get re-elected. I think the, so the third chicken, if we can we can come on to that, one of the reasons, I think, why Boris Johnson is where he is, um, I mean, well, the, the supplementary chicken is that MPs made Boris Johnson Prime Minister despite being manifestly unsuited and... That is, oh boy, is coming home to roost right now. Oh yeah, and they're definitely seeing it multiple times themselves, given the number of times that, I mean, we've talked about this countless times, I think, on this podcast, the number of times that basically they're being sent out there to defend a position, taking slack from it from their constituents, some of them in the national media, going on the radio and the TV to defend the government's position, and then to act two days later, in some cases mere hours later, Poor quasi Karteng. The government changes the position and they all look like absolute wallies. They have egg all over their faces. But one of the reasons why Boris Johnson, I think, is in the position he is is because people don't see him as a normal politician. He is seen as a bit of a maverick uh, and sort of untainted, that sort of Teflon nature. And there's a very big danger, I think, of that being torpedoed by the corruption um numerous corruption and steel stories happening in Westminster at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. There was some polling that I think was released today which basically showed that uh, along the lines of do you think um, the Conservatives are sleazy and corrupt? And it had gone up from like 51% last week to 60% or thereabouts this week. That's not a good position for the government to be in. 
It's been a bit of a week, really, for the Conservatives. I, I think we've well, got the upcoming vote, I think, of the Tory MPs <coughs> having to vote again to confirm the punishment on Owen Paterson, which they voted to unconfirm last week. Good luck with the whips for that, because coming through a bit of a slap through the Geoffrey Cox stuff. Je- it's amazing, actually, how these, these stories sort of bring back ministers you've forgotten about. Geoffrey Cox, of course, best known for having a voice. He is also a lawyer, and if you want that voice, to sp- that sonorous baritone to speak for an hour, it would cost you about £813 or something. About a, a thousand times more expensive than subscribing to us on Patreon. <laughs> The Guardian, I think, have worked out that he's earned £6 million from his second job as a lawyer. Yeah. And actually, during lockdown, was voting remotely in the British Virgin Islands while on a second job out there, which is it's a hell of a thing, really. Yeah, it, 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 it really is. He hasn't done anything wrong within the rules, as far as I'm aware, but he's just the poster boy of this is what they can you can do and get away with. This is a man who... Um, is advising, um, I think literally states, um, on, uh, kind of like financial affairs and tax affairs whilst also sitting in parliament and able to dictate legislation in, 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 in no small part, uh, on, on, on how the British government responds to these things. And because he has declared it all, unlike Owen Patterson, it's all above board, quote-unquote. But it's still not great. Something that could well be, that has prompted Labour to see if there should be an investigation is that Cox has appeared, I think, in Zoom meetings from his parliamentary office. Yeah. Uh, which, given you're not meant to use your parliamentary office for non-parliamentary work, it's an interesting question. Indeed. Yeah, and that's an, that, that, that is also just an interesting question from a pure rules and logistics perspective. The, the key thing, so what Cox has said... Uh, in a baritone voice, in a statement on Twitter delivered in the third person, is essentially the whips knew about this. If you're in a, if your parliamentary party is in a position where the whips office is getting a lot of grief for, grief for this, that is not a good place to be in. No. This talk of Tory MPs sort of self whipping now, it's like John Major and Maastricht all over again. <laughs> the only qualification being that Johnson's majority is four times bigger. <laughs> Which genuinely just gives you uh, so much of a statement about the the state of the government under Boris Johnson, like like John Major at the tail end of you know a very long period of conservative rule, dealing with all kinds of crap from backbenchers of all different stripes. Some literal just corruption, cash for question style things. Others just you know. European headbangers just not wanting to to, to uh, you know play ball or, or, or anything was able to like handle himself in, in such a way and get more probably done despite having a much smaller majority than Boris Johnson pandemic notwithstanding which obviously kind of throws a, a spanner in the works but there's been they've had plenty of time to do other stuff as well now who doesn't love the traffic cone hotline exactly or British rail or the lottery <laughs> The reason I think it's such an issue for the Conservatives is because the, the, the sort of second job stuff is almost is essentially dominated by Conservative MPs and Conservative ministers as well. As you say with Cox, a lot of this stuff is sort of within the letter of the rule where it seems to be that the deal is if you are a minister, you lose your ministerial salary, you get a second job as sort of a lobbyist or an advisor or something, yeah. and your salary gets topped up and no one talks about it. Yeah, and, and the thing is, like, uh, like 
working in the private sector, a work consultancy. Yeah, it's marketing rather than legal um, legal stuff. But like, I've worked with every everything from you know small local businesses right the way up to Fortune five hundreds. Um, I know what my hourly rates are in terms of what I what my, the business I work for charges me out at. I know what my roughly what my rates would be if I were doing this like individually as a, a you know a freelancing consultant. My rates would be nowhere near what Jeffrey Cox is charging, and I yeah, yeah. he has it well. He, but you don't have a sonorous baritone. <laughs> good though your voice is. Yeah. But this is but this is the thing. Like so much of what he's being paid for cannot be just broad brush legal advice, because you can get it a hell of a lot cheaper from a hell of a lot better sources. And most uh, companies will clamp down on that sort of stuff because there will always be a question of budgets and everything like that. So the fact that that's continuing to happen, that these things are being paid and everything, means that the value they are getting from him is well beyond just general advice, which means it must be bordering on the same kind of area as what Owen Patterson was doing. Well, let's take Ian Duncan Smith as an, as an example. Maybe maybe we finish finish it. But So Ian Duncan Smith is pay, was paid £25,000 a year to advise a hand sanitizer company. He chaired a government task force on innovation, growth, and regulatory reform, which was looking at how to cut suppose, you know, EU red tape. Yeah. And it recommended that alcohol-free hand sanitizers should alcohol-free hand sanitizers should be formally recognised as suitable for use. You will never guess which company provides the NHS with ninety-two percent of its alcohol-free sanitizers. The one that's paying him twenty-five thousand pounds a year. Absolutely, and they will be making more than twenty-five thousand pounds a year out of sales to directly to the NHS. And and here's the thing, like. The actual core thing that was being investigated there, use of non-alcohol-based hand sanitizers, actually not necessarily a bad thing to look at, but... <laughs> it's a brazen conflict yeah, of interest. It is, 100%. You should not be like uh, having a say on that at all. There are some things that, that I think the speaker can do to probably even make changes on, on this sort of thing, where it's just like, like all of these sorts of things we know about because they are in the you know the, the, the public ledgers on, on these, these are the relationships... <laughs> If these MPs are serving on these committees, just enforce them to stand aside if we can identify that there is. Just have somebody actually go through and say, Ian Duncan Smith is on this committee, this committee is investigating these things. Are there any conflicts of interest? Yes, no, maybe. And then just it just needs to be a thing that you turn around to the Conservatives and say, Ian Duncan Smith cannot serve on this, please find another person. This uh, this was public knowledge. This that. Duncan Smith put this in the register of members' interests. Exactly. I'm not annoyed about that. What I'm annoyed about is essentially, you just need to do a Google search. Yeah. Well, but, um, but, 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 but my point is, there's a potentially an easy way to kind of resolve that. Is like use that register uh, members of sorry, what, what's the word again? The, the register of members' interests, and then just have the speaker or, or, or the rules actually say that if you have that conflict of interest, you don't get to serve on that committee. One of two things will happen: either people will stop ha- having so many, uh, so many things in the in the interest, in which case, eventually, they'll, they'll, if they do have them, they'll get caught and then be bonged out like uh, Owen Patterson ended up being, or people will just stop taking the money because it stops them actually doing their job. We are going to have a bit more of a chat about MP second jobs on Patreon for our champagners over there. Shall we just finish off with a very, very, very quick question about? How how deadly are these chickens? 
Uh, are they sort of E. coli carrying massive war chickens that are going to destroy Boris Johnson's premiership? Or is this just Johnson famously never explain, never apologise, he'll ride out the storm, it'll all be fine for him? The Jeffrey Cox stuff, um, linking it with Owen Patterson and, and, and everything else, I think that is a lot more dangerous to the government, as we kind of like briefly mentioned earlier. There was some polling this week which has found that something like, say, 60% of people now consider the government, the Conservative Party, to be sleazy and or corrupt or, or whatever the wording was. And that is a very bad position to be in. Uh, especially when you consider like a lot of the the voters that Boris Johnson's government are reliant on in the Red Wall, um, based on other polling, we know take a very dim view of these sorts of things. And I think again, I think we might have discussed this on previous podcasts. Like it becomes a bit of a question as to are they so cynical that they'll just happily kind of vote vote along with the, the Conservatives anyway because they're all as bad as each other, or will they just go? You know what? We gave you a chance, and you've proven yourself to be unworthy. Maybe they don't vote at all. Maybe they vote Labour. Maybe protest votes. Who, who knows? But that's where the real danger lies, because you can see a thread of how it actually impacts their electoral calculus. It was interesting. There's some leaked WhatsApp messages from an MPs group with Nadine Dorries, I think, replying to. I think it was George Freeman yeah. saying essentially, "This is right outable because." In 2009, we had the expenses scandal, which was no more on the scale of this. A year later, you had the Conservative government. To which I feel like the obvious rejoinder is that it's unsurprising that there was a backlash to the governing party after a massive MPs expenses scandal. Given they would have made up the majority of the House of Commons. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that, that is the main... There's, well, there's two main differences. One is Tories weren't in power then. They are now. And, and also, like... With the expensive scandal, there was story after story after story of all kinds of MPs with issues and like ridiculous purchases and, and things like that. Not so with this. Second jobs, as we've already discussed, it's a, more or less a uniquely conservative phenomenon And when it comes to the Houses of Parliament. Yeah, there's some Labour MPs with them and things like that, but nowhere near on the same scale. And so for Doris's argument to, to work, it needs to be, you need, the, the Tories need to be able to brush everybody with the same and basically saying oh yeah but we're all as bad as each other well that's not borne out by the evidence and even the right wing media aren't going by that attack they tried briefly with the daily mail trying to make it about all mps being on the take but that went away very quickly and now it's all about boris johnson and all about the failures of his government. We should probably end there, but we are straight after this going to talk about MPs' second jobs in what is our second job. Um, if you want us to be paid £25,000 a year for that second job, what would you have to do, Steve? Uh, you'd have to head over to patreon.com slash champagne and throw us a few pounds every month. Uh, we'd need a significant number of you to, to, to do that to be able to earn £25,000 uh, a year, let alone a month. Uh uh, but uh, yeah, you can head over there for us a few quid. Uh, again, access to the community over there. Unique uh, episodes, including the one that we're going to be recording directly after this on uh, MPs' uh, second jobs. Our website's notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. James Cram designed the logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. And Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Book of Good Times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. 
I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. Happy plotting.